Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, I chat with reporters Sean Galanka and Carmen Landinger about the water levels at Lake Mead, how they're affecting recreation opportunities, and what it means for those who rely on the reservoir's water. After that, reporter Humberto Sanchez talks about the Inflation Reduction Act, a piece of federal legislation that has big changes for Medicare, environmental spending, and more. At the end of the show, Jacob sits down with UNLV scientist Ashkan Salamat to talk about a new discovery from the university's Extreme Conditions Lab and what it could mean for the efficiency of our power grid in the future. If you live in Las Vegas or have been paying attention at all to the water news in the West, you'll know that we're in a drought, which is significantly affecting the Colorado River, which feeds into Lake Mead. Even though we've had a relatively rainy summer here in the Silver State, it's not enough to mitigate years of little rain and decreased snowmelt. The lake's water levels have gotten so low that federal water managers issued cuts to states that pull from the Colorado River. Reporter Sean Galanka reported on this announcement. The U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, which kind of oversees water in the western region of the United States, they released new projections for Lake Mead and Lake Powell levels in the next two years. And basically what that projection showed is that Lake Mead is going to be operating in a a new level of shortage, a tier two shortage, it's called, with that shortage starting in 2023. It triggers cuts in Arizona, triggers cuts in Mexico, and it triggers cuts in Nevada. So these cuts dictate that Nevada has to cut 8% of its allocated water use from Lake Mead. So what does that mean for the average Nevadan? Do I need to drink 8% less water? No, not really. Cutting this 8% really isn't affecting water operations in Nevada in the near term because the Southern Nevada Water Authority already does such a, a great job at recycling water, at implementing really aggressive water conservation measures so that Nevada is not you know, drawing its full share from Lake Mead every year. But even though the Southern Nevada Water Authority, the managing entity behind water use in Southern Nevada, has been lauded for its effective conservation efforts, people are still seeing effects of the drought. This is very evident if you like to recreate in Lake Mead and have recently been down to the ever-receding shoreline. All of the boat ramps in Nevada, except for one, have closed due to low water levels. Reporter Carmen Landinger visited the lake recently to check out the last boat ramp that is open. There's a total of six, but of the six, there's only one, and that's at Hemingway Harbor. It's had a huge impact. The boat ramps were closed in May, and then some of them actually went under a bit of construction. So since the water levels are so low, the boat ramps didn't actually reach the water. It was like concrete. What they did was they extended the pipe mat, which is like a temporary little pavement. Hemingway Harbor reopened. There's around four hours to even five hours of a wait time. Some people were even heading down to other nearby lakes. And now because of that, since so many people have left that area and had heard about the wait times, now there's almost no wait times at all. Okay, so there's a lot less people taking boats out onto the lake, and that means that the businesses around the lake are seeing the effects of that decreased visitation. So fewer people means fewer dollars in the pockets of those businesses for an area that really relies on tourism to thrive. 
So they're really being impacted by the boat closures. Just in general, tourism has not been as high as it was in previous years. Just that's based off of talking to boaters who frequently go to Lake Mead and also to some of the businesses that I spoke with. One of the main factors was just the long wait times when you rent out a jet ski or if you rent out a boat, if you're renting it out just for that day, you only have a certain number of hours. So when you rent it at like 8 a.m., you have to go through the process of like filing paperwork, understanding how the boat works, and then you take it out to Lake Mead and then you wait who knows how long, four hours maybe, if you were renting it during that May time. And so then there's four hours of your day, then you go in the water, and then you maybe have like two or three hours, and then you have to be back at the rental company by 5 p.m. So it was definitely something that you were spending more time at the boat ramp area rather than actually being on the water unfortunately so a lot of people just stopped renting and so a lot of businesses were really hurt by that luckily there's one business that carmen talked to that was still seeing some visitors so my name is laird sanders uh managing partner here at lake mead boat storage overall our business has gone down only like maybe a couple percentage points you know we're probably at about maybe 30 spots that are vacant. We have 700 total. We are seeing more RVs that are coming on and being stored here. Are seeing folks who are interested in in selling their boats, but don't see like a huge mass exodus of people who are owning boats. But Sanders pointed to a small silver lining in this situation. So last time I was down there was July 4th. uh, And it was interesting because we took a kayak and basically were able to cross a major part of Lake Mead, which is something you would never do in the past because there was really no boats there. So it was nice from a nature and enjoyment perspective, but definitely kind of eerie as well. So because there's so few people out on the lake, businesses have taken quite a hit. Still, ultimately, there are even more significant threats to the millions of people who rely on the lake that aren't necessarily using it for recreation. Here's Sean again. Just thinking about the reservoirs as a whole, Lakes Mead and Powell, they're at a, a little more than a quarter of full capacity. Lake Mead right now is at a lower level than it was when it was first filled scores of years ago. And really, if we drop below a certain level in those large reservoirs, we risk losing a massive amount of hydroelectric power that's generated by the dams, you know, Hoover Dam, Glen Canyon Dam in in Arizona at Lake Powell. We also lose water deliveries to places like agricultural districts in the southwest, like in Arizona. And there's a lot of environmental impacts, too, with these kind of declining water levels. For example, you look at the, the Salton Sea. For this is the story of the miracle sea in the desert, the Salton Sea. In the Central Valley of California, and because the water level is is declining in the Salton Sea, there's basically toxic materials in the riverbed that are going into the air. Speaking of the Salton Sea, let's chat about California for a minute. Every Nevadan's favorite topic. The Colorado River supplies over 40 million people with water in seven different states. Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, Arizona, and California. It also supplies Mexico with water. You'll notice that Sean only mentioned that Nevada, Arizona, and Mexico had to make cuts. These specific cuts come from an agreement made in 2007. So a lot of how this works is that Arizona has these junior water rights and California has these senior water rights. So a lot more of this water is basically protected to preserve I mean, really a lot of agriculture in California, whereas a lot of these cuts that are happening are basically cutting 
water allocations for agriculture in Arizona. This has already been agreed upon and people are saying, why aren't, why isn't California doing more? Well, there's talks about that, but that's just not what the, the, the agreements dictate as they exist now. All right. So there are some historical agreements that dictate how these cuts are being made right now. And while those cuts are being made and there are fewer boats out on the lake and less recreation, Lake Mead is still an incredibly popular destination. Last year in 2021, even though there was still a lot of issues with the pandemic, almost 7.6 million people visited Lake Mead, which made it the fifth most visited place within the national park system. So that goes to show that even with the levels of the drought and even with all the impending like heat waves, everything that's going on, it's still a popular place to visit. When I went down to Lake Mead, there was actually people visiting from England. I'm Karen Grattage from Derby in England. Well, we've just we've just come to visit the lake for the day. Beautiful, beautiful Great. place. We haven't booked anything at the lake here. <laughs> we've just come to see, you know, what what it was. Going to Hoover Dam the other day mm-hmm. made us realise the source of where, you know, where the source of the water was coming from. So we wanted to sort of just come and see it for ourselves. Of course, another reason that people have been drawn to the lake recently is the news of what's been found at the bottom of the lake. Places that used to be underwater are now beaches, and that has led to some good and bad surprises. Lake Mead has been making national news for some of the human remains that have been found. Human remains discovered at Lake Mead. remains of four people found. Human remains have been discovered in Lake Mead. But beside that, there has also been boats being found, sunken boats. So, what can someone who lives near the lake do to help preserve water and conserve the lake's natural beauty? So in Las Vegas, you're not going to have to stop taking showers or flushing your toilet. (laughs) All the water that goes down a drain indoors in in southern Nevada is recycled by the Water Authority. That's how how well they're recycling water is. Pretty much the water that we lose in southern Nevada is from outdoor use. You know, if you see somebody who's watering their lawn in the middle of the day in the summer, that's water being lost through evaporation, through runoff. And, you know, that's why we have watering restrictions in place in southern Nevada it's why they're trying to do things like get rid of gra- grass lawns, incentivize doing that at least, so that there's not that outdoor use that's wasting water, because it's really that outdoor use that's that's driving our consumptive use of that water, where we're not putting water back into the, the lake. All right. So what is next? Is this going to get better? Will there be more cuts? So there are really sizable cuts expected probably very soon, just because right now the, the reservoirs are, are at an unsustainable level. And so back in June, the, the head of the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation tasked the seven states within the Colorado River Basin to come up with massive cuts, two to four million acre feet of water. That basically amounts to at least 15 percent of the entire Colorado River water on an, on an annual basis. And the, the states had a deadline to reach an agreement on those cuts, that deadline came and it went and the federal government did not announce any more you know, specific action in terms of actual cuts, but they did say, you know, we are willing to make those cuts if the states do not come up with an agreement. And with all of that being said, there are still some glimmers of hope. Here's Carmen again. When I started the story, I want to say like two weeks ago, it was at 1,040 feet. And then I checked again and it was at 1,041. And then when I went yesterday, they had a sign and it said 1,042. 
the boat ramps will not be opened until it reaches 1,050 feet. It's not quite certain when the lake will reach that level again, so for now those boat ramps are closed indefinitely. This piece was reported by Carmen Landinger and Sean Galanka, and produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley. All right, Jacob, so while the federal government is working with squabbling states over water usage, congressional lawmakers in D.C. are passing some major spending bills right now. That's right. So the Inflation Reduction Act, as you've probably heard, was signed into law recently and earmarks over $700 billion in spending for things like Medicare and environmental protection. You know, and as part of that, you can actually get a rebate from the federal government for upgrading parts of your house to make it more energy efficient and environmentally friendly. So we're going to hop over to a chat Joey had with our man in D.C., Humberto Sanchez, who's going to tell you all about it. All right. Well, I am here with our man in D.C., Humberto Sanchez, and we are talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, a $700 billion bill that passed and was signed by President Joe Biden. And it does a lot of things other than just reduce inflation. And we're going to get into that. But before we do that, as always, we start with the weather. How is the weather in D.C. this fine August day? It's it's a little on the hot side. It's not too bad, though. The humidity is not as bad. Because it, it, it's like Florida here. Every every afternoon, it, it just explodes in rain. Well, funny enough, here in Reno, we've had a very rainy summer. And I went outside to pick up a package. And I was like, I couldn't believe how humid it was outside. Yeah. So anyway, let's talk about this bill. So like I said, $700 billion plus package that, that that that's doing a ton of stuff. Why don't you go over what it does exactly in broad stroke? It's, it's a massive bill that is chock full of, of Democratic agenda items. Because it was passed by only Democrats, no Republicans voted for the bill. It raises overall about $737 billion over 10 years. And it has about $437 billion to address climate change. It also extends subsidies from health insurance premiums for three years. It provides drought relief for Western states. And then it also has a series of tax provisions that offsets that $737 billion. So you have a 15% corporate minimum tax. There is a crackdown on well-heeled tax golf laws, which should lead to should raise about $100 billion. And then it's supposed to offset the deficit as well by about $300 billion, including that $100 billion from cracking down on tax fraud. I feel like I've been hearing so much about stalemates in the Senate and in the House, and just it feels like not a lot has been happening because we're so divided right now. You know, the bipartisan infrastructure bill was a big deal, and the name bipartisan was tagged onto that. So, how did this get passed compared to all the stuff that hasn't been able to get passed recently? This kind of caught everybody by surprise. It was over a year of negotiations after the Democrats passed the rescue plan. President Biden wanted to pass something called Build Back Better, which was basically a lot more of the Democratic priorities that they wanted to pass together with infrastructure, but then they split up the two bills. Nevertheless, after they passed the infrastructure, Democrats had to negotiate amongst themselves because the Senate is split 50-50 among the parties. Mm. All 50 senators had to be on board. And so that broke down to essentially what will Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, the senators from West Virginia and Arizona, respectively, what will they support? The president put out a plan, Senate Democratic leaders started negotiations. And over a period of months, 
those broke down on in several fronts. <laughs> Basically, Joe Manchin was concerned that this would exacerbate inflation and that it was going to heat up the economy and it would be a bad time to put this money into the economy. And so it went nowhere and everyone assumed that the, the it was dead, but negotiations were ongoing with Manchin. And eventually one day he just put out a press release saying, I have an agreement on a very scaled back version of what was no longer called Build Better, Better was called the Inflation Reduction Act. And so the Democrats passed it using reconciliation, which required every Democrat to be on board. Yeah. And we'll kind of get back into that in a minute, just because I think that is pretty interesting. You know, we're coming up in the election. I think that they really want to hang their hats on the, the victories that they've had. But let's jump into the minutia of the bill a little bit here. And we're going to start with uh, Medicare. There's a lot of money going towards Medicare in this bill, right? Yeah, there is a lot of, for Medicare in this. So there's about 560,000 Medicare beneficiaries in Nevada. That's a big share of, of the population. And so uh, it has benefits that go in stages. So not every part of the bill starts immediately. Some things that do start immediately is there'll be a $35 cap on co-pays for insulin for Medicare beneficiaries. That's a big deal. Diabetes is a very common disease in America. And about 22,000 Nevadans enrolled in Medicare would benefit from that. And then beginning in 2023, drug companies that raise their prices at a quicker rate than inflation would be required to pay a rebate. The idea being that you want to try to keep drug prices down. And that's one mechanism they're trying to use to do that. And then beginning in 2025, there'll be a $2,000 annual cap on out-of-pocket costs for Medicare Part D enrollees, and that's the prescription drug insurance plan for Medicare enrollees. And then the big kahuna is Medicare will be allowed to negotiate with drug makers on certain prescription drugs. That is a big deal. Prescription drug prices have been going up, and so this is going to allow people on Medicare to pay less to, to negotiate as a group to get a better rate on the drugs. It's going to phase in again. It starts in 2026 with 10 drugs. And then by 2030, it should be 80 drugs. It could help over 400,000 Nevadans who are on Medicare Part D. So obviously the Medicare is a huge, a huge part of this, but there's also something that's totally separate from Medicare, which is that there's climate provisions in this bill. There's a lot of money going towards different types of climate change mitigation measures. So for climate, there's, there's going to be a $370 billion that would go to address climate change, mostly in the form of tax credits for home efficiency. And the bill would provide tax credits for renewable energy, including solar, which is a, is a big deal in Nevada. So tax credits will cover about 30% of the cost to install solar panels and battery storage systems, upgrade heating and cooling. So so if I wanted to like reinsulate my house or redo my power box or add solar to my house, I could actually get a kickback from the government for doing that, right? Right. That's right. The government will help you pay for that. There's rebates for 50 to 100% for installing like new electric appliances, super efficient heat pumps, and that kind of thing, because that stuff is a big draw on the, on the grid. They, I want to also mention that the $4 billion for, for drought relief, that has been prioritized actually for states along the Colorado River. So Nevada will be getting a, a portion of that. I know that there's been some, the, the delegation here has tried to fund anti-erosion projects for the Colorado Wash, and that's something that could be eligible for funding there. There's a lot of the people employed in the solar industry as well in Nevada, and groups like the Solar Energy Industry Association believes that this will generate a lot of investment in solar infrastructure, which would lead to more jobs. Nevada's getting quite a bit of, from this bill. And then the last kind of major thing that was on this this bill was tax provisions. Explain to me, you know, what these tax provisions are and what they're going to be doing. The tax provisions in this bill are mostly to raise revenue to offset the cost. So altogether, these these tax provisions are designed to pay for the bill. And then there's also the eighty billion for the IRS crackdown on on tax scoff laws. 
So there's also a lot of money going towards inflation reduction, right? That was kind of the original name of the bill. It got changed a little bit, but people are still calling it the Inflation Reduction Act. How is this going to reduce inflation? I mean, when I hear when I hear about tax provisions and climate provisions and Medicare, that's that doesn't that doesn't scream reducing inflation in my head. <laughs> that's a big point of contention right now. There's a couple of studies that say that it would not reduce it in the immediate years, but would down the road. And so the idea is that it would put inflation on a better trajectory, I think, is a, a more correct way of saying it. Republicans are taking issue with that. We saw Mark Amaday, he thinks the economy is in recession. And the last thing you need right now is to put more money into the economy and continue firing up the inflation engine. So and then the last thing I want to talk about before we wrapped up is that this this was a big victory for Democrats. It kind of came out of nowhere. What does this indicate for the election coming up in November? Well, right now you see all the congressional Democrats going all over Nevada, especially with the White House officials. They're all barnstorming, making sure that people know about these these provisions and these bills and what's what's in it for Nevada. It's up to them really to try to make the case, to try to show people to to message this bill, to market it to the voters. They've had a very productive spell, including the gun legislation, the infrastructure bill. Those are those are big victories and they're right now celebrating them. Will Democrats turn out? Will voters turn out and, and give them credit for, for these legislative wins? It's yet to be seen. We'll 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 see. And now from across the country to our own backyard, one group of scientists has made a new discovery. That's right. Well, at least a new discovery building on an old, very cool discovery. I sat down with Ashkan Salamat, uh, an assistant professor of physics over at UNLV and uh, the lead of UNLV's Nevada Extreme Conditions Lab. Yeah, and they discovered a material that is a more efficient superconductor at room temperature, right? Well, not just at room temperature, but at lower pressures than have been previously observed. And if that sounds really dense, don't worry, it's not. Ashkin and I are going to get right into all the science, break down all of the terminology, and let you know why this is such an exciting discovery because of what it could mean for you and your power usage in the future. So I wanted to ask about the Extreme Materials Lab a little bit and sort of what that looks like. What is it? So our laboratory, this center has has emerged in the last year. I'm the director of the center. We have three research assistant professors under me. We have a couple of postdocs. These are postdoctoral students. We have nine PhD students and a small army of undergrads. We specialize in making materials that Mother Nature herself cannot make. In our laboratories, we're able to go from the temperatures of outer space, about 4 Kelvin, all the way to the temperature of the surface of a star. So the temperature range we can access in our laboratory is remarkable. And so in our, in our laboratories, we specialize in replicating the interior of planets or making weird and wonderful quantum materials that you just do, do not find naturally on Earth or most likely anywhere in the universe. If we step all the way back, when we talk about superconductors, right? So if someone has no idea what that is, how would you explain it to them? So superconductors are these weird and wonderful sets of materials. In fact, they're very complicated. The principal one is that it has zero resistance to electrical flow. So in our current technology, when we pass electricity from point A to B, whatever material we're using heats up and as a consequence, there's some energy loss. But in superconducting materials, you can pass electrical energy from A to B with with absolutely zero loss. To contextualize maybe some of the use cases here, I know we were talking about consumer grade stuff. I know something that's been brought up in this context is the energy grid, right? 
Absolutely. So the current US energy transmission grid loses about $30 billion a year as a consequence of just materials heating up as you pass electricity from point A to B. A superconducting energy grid, is it's coming. Whether it comes in my lifetime or not, we'll look back 100 years from now and, and be bemused why we as a society were still using aluminum for our energy grid. One can envision that solar farms here in Nevada generate huge amounts of energy then that's then that's just shared or distributed across the country if not the globe so you could easily envision uh, a solar panel here in nevada powering a kettle in new york state with no loss from point a to point b i want to get into some of the limitations because obviously superconductors aren't a consumer grade technology right now so at a base level why is that so up until recently, most of the superconducting materials that have a place within within technology have to be operated at very, very cold temperatures, equivalent to that of outer space. In terms of applications, we haven't really found materials that operate at higher temperatures that have the specific needs. Even though superconducting materials have these amazing properties, often they're very costly to, to operate. And as a consequence, we don't see them at all in consumer goods. Back in late 2020, your team made a little bit of a discovery with some new material science at the Extreme Materials Lab. So I guess, how would you explain what you guys did? So superconductivity is a quantum phenomena, and we often thought and believed that quantum phenomena would only occur at very, very low temperatures. In 2020, we made the first ever observation of a superconducting material that existed at room temperature. The small caveat was that in the 2020 work, for this material to exist, it had to be under extreme amounts of pressure. But fundamentally, what was critical, what was made it one of the discoveries of the year is the fact that we demonstrated that these quantum states can exist at room temperature. Just to really hammer home how big this was, before then, it wasn't necessarily clear that this would be something that was even possible. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, standing on the shoulder of giants. So it's not that we just stumbled on this our community, specifically the community that I, I sit inside, the, what we call the high-pressure physics community, had been working extensively over the last 20 years to increase this superconducting temperature incrementally. It's just we we were able to under, understand these materials in a different way and to utilize this understanding and to, to break the right record of achieving room temperature superconductivity by quite a bit. Okay. And I do want to get to the newest discovery here in a second, but I did want to ask a little bit about the materials at hand. So when we talk about these superconductive materials, what are we talking about? Yeah, so in principle, all the elements should superconduct. If you get something cold enough, now you might have to go to temperatures you would never see naturally in the universe. These are human-made temperature conditions. In 2014 was a paradigm shift in the understanding of these materials where the group in Germany demonstrated that smelly hydrogen sulfide, if you go to Yellowstone and that, that stench, that's hydrogen sulfide that you're smelling. You can take this and, and transform it into a superconducting metal. So our work built on that. We found that when you introduce carbon into hydrogen sulfide, you're able to change it chemically in such a unique way that we increase the superconducting transition temperature to room temperature. So remarkably, it's biomass. Bugs excrete this kind of poop. And who would have thought that such an organic biomass when perturbed in such a strange way could demonstrate such remarkable quantum behavior? So I guess that brings us to this year, right? Where there was a bit of a discovery again on this front. And I guess, how would you explain this newest sort of phase of the research? 
So since the 2020 discovery, we've been working very aggressively in trying to understand these materials. This was work led by Alex Smith, a senior grad student in, in our center at the Nevada Extreme Condition Laboratory. And so what we've shown in our most recent work is that you can remarkably change the onset of superconductivity. So I guess my question is, what comes next? I think the obvious goal, right, would be to get this kind of technology usable in sort of traditional applications. But how does that happen? The next is taking this discovery and driving it into a technology. And so that's the real thing that drives our group. We're incredibly passionate about climate change and dealing with the onset of the energy crisis and a very clear pathway for us for trying to tackle some of these bigger problems that face humanity is through very intelligent material design. Having materials that can completely revolutionize the way we consume energy. And so we're feeling very confident the next set of materials that are going to come out of the center are going to be well within the capabilities of manufacturing. And we are passionate about bringing societal change through these intelligent design materials. What's going to be the real uphill challenge is the ability to make commercially viable devices. If you can make something, but it's a billion dollars, that's fine. Maybe NASA will buy one, but you won't have it commonly found within all electronic goods. And so it's that economy of scale that's really going to be the uphill battle. We've discovered a remarkable set of materials. We want to make them viable for consumer goods. We have to make them cost-effective, robust. And so there's a whole economical battle to be had ahead of time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Carmen Landinger, Sean Galanka, Humberto Sanchez, and Ashkan Salamat for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us with your favorite movie to watch on a Sunday afternoon while you have nothing to do or whatever else is on your mind at podcast at Our original theme song is from Emily Pratt. And we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. So with so few people taking... Oh my god. <laughs> oh, what? Oh. <laughs> uh, I guess I'll... I guess this will be a blooper. I'm at a cabin right now, actually, recording this voiceover. Um, and, and a little, little, little mouse just ran by. <laughs> I guess I'll go deal with that before finishing this.